Good morning, everyone. The last time I had the privilege of teaching up here, we looked at uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and today we're going to go into mainly verses 3, 4, and 5. We'll save the rest if I ever get the opportunity again. Um, let's pray before we begin. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for bringing us all together here on this beautiful morning to study your word together and to learn from this book that you've given us, this old, old story that's been handed down from age to age, Lord. And we just recognize you as our King, Father. And I know this, this, is, this is not my message. I'm here just bringing your message to these people, Lord, and just please bless that message. Send down the Spirit, Lord, and just touch hearts this morning. Help us as we wade through this, Lord. Give us wisdom and help us all go home with something new to think about and to chew on for the week. Um, come and bless us this morning, Father. I pray these things in your name. Amen. I guess I'm old school. I use a notebook, and this pulpit's not big enough. But uh, we'll work through this. Um, so the first half, or the first couple verses of this chapter, Paul talks about... Um, let me get situated here. Justification through faith, which we looked at last time. But the next couple verses, he delves into something that's kind of radical, probably in that day and age, and it is as well today, where we are to have a joy about us as we go through tribulations. Um, I kind of wanted to use a historical person for an example to kind of introduce this. And when I looked up people who um, were known for rejoicing and suffering, uh, the name John Bunyan popped up. And I had read Pilgrim's Progress, but I didn't really know much about John Bunyan's life. So I looked into it, and it turns out he had a pretty turmoil-driven life. Um, he started out as a, as a you know, his uh, peasant in England, basically. His family was very poor. They were unbelievers. Uh, in fact, he was the first member of his family that could read or write. Um, and so as a young adult, he was kind of hostile against the gospel. But then um, a couple events happened in his life that started drawing him towards the Lord. The first was his mother and his um, sister die pretty tragically. And then he had a near-death experience in the military. But through this, the Lord drew him to himself. Uh, then he, he marries a devout Puritan woman, and no doubt she helped him along the walk of his faith, and then he becomes to, he begins to preach, and this is the mid-1600s in England where the Anglican church is the only recognized church in, in England, and if you don't preach in an Anglican church, you run the risk of imprisonment, and John did, and he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel, and then one day the authorities showed up at his house and told him if he doesn't stop preaching the gospel, He's going to prison, and he wouldn't refuse, so they arrested him, and they took him to prison. Um, and the shock of that sent his wife into early labor, because she was well pregnant at the time, and the baby dies in that labor. John had four other children at home, his wife and children, and he had the choice to give up preaching the gospel and stay home with his wife or go to prison, and he chose to go to prison because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. He spent the next 12 years in prison, and he could have stopped it at any time. If he would have just said, I refuse, I'll no longer preach, 
Just let me go home. He could have stopped at any time, but he didn't. Um, he writes about this from prison. He says, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. He tells, though, how this time drew him nearer and nearer to Christ. He later went on to write in prison, I am indeed in prison now in body, but my mind is free to study Christ, and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame, nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope they cannot lame, above them I shall be. John went on to write nearly 60 books in his life, and 12 of them were written while he was in prison, one of which the most popular one was Pilgrim's Progress. When I read read that, that was like, wow, this is perfect. This is a guy that he had studied his Bible. He no doubt knew these passages well, as well as some of the other apostles we're going to look at, who talk about this interesting idea of having joy while you're going through trials and tribulations. And he grasped right onto it, and he was able to harness that, and it gave him strength. So let's turn to our text now. We're going to look at Romans 5, the passage of Dixie read for us. Um, We'll start, though, in verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. So what is Paul talking about when he speaks of tribulation? Um, The Greek word that he uses could actually has a couple different definitions. It could be translated as suffering, distress, persecution, or affliction. So those words we're a little more familiar with. Um, But what does this look like in our own personal lives? You know, you think of persecution, and here in the United States, we don't suffer much persecution, you know, where there's... There's great persecution going on around the world. We just heard about it this morning from John and Becca here. But, you know, there's still, there's many countries in this world where it's illegal to be a Christian. There's many countries in this world where people just get belittled and harassed legally and physically for being Christians. You know, China is still imprisoning pastors this day. In the last couple years, I found stories of two different pastors who are facing eight and nine year sentences in prison for preaching the gospel. But we think of that, we hear that, and we think, well, that's kind of hard to relate to because we don't really suffer that way here. But we have our own forms of suffering and tribulations here in the United States. Yes, we're greatly blessed to live in the country we live in, but we all still suffer illness. You know, you could be going along, 45 years old, looking towards retirement, go for a regular checkup at the doctor, and he tells you you're full of cancer. You have six to eight months to live. You know, how do you face that? The loss of a loved one, someone you're very close with, could be even a wife or a child, gets suddenly taken from you, and you're suffering with that. The loss of a job. You know, in today's economy, is it that uncommon for someone to show up at your, for your your foreman to come to you when you show up to the shop and say, listen, we've been bought out, we have to downsize, and we're cutting your department. You've got two weeks, and then, I'm sorry, we've got to throw you out. Or it could be as simple as losing friends because of your faith. You know, you used to have a group of drinking buddies that you go out with on Friday nights, and you no longer do that with them. And they begin to just not invite you anymore, and they kind of ostracize you because you're kind of a downer on those times, you know. But 
These are all ways that we, can suffer, that we suffer in this country. Or you could take a pay cut or choose a less desirable shift just to be able to be at church on Sunday morning when you could be making a lot more working Sunday morning. Another one I was thinking of is if two unbelievers get married and one of them becomes a Christian and that could cause tension in a marriage, you know, these are all ways that we are, we are afflicted in this country. Um, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, I think it's going to be on the overhead here, verses 11 and 12, this is Jesus himself saying, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This was a big part of Jesus' message. And it, the, the apostles who spent a lot of time with him, they got it. This whole idea of, yes, you're going to be tormented in this, in this lifetime. You're going to run into tribulation. But the mindset is not to drudge through it and suffer through it, but to rejoice in it because you're being strengthened through it. So whatever the cause of the tribulation you may be coming into in your life, and there's going to be many, the, uh, the, the, the main factor that displays your faith is how you deal with that and how you act in the midst of that tribulation. If you look at James, he spoke the same thing, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. James is writing a, whole, a letter to Jewish believers and the first thing he starts with, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the, te the testing of your faith produces patience. Um, Peter, sorry, drew a blank there. Peter also in his epistles talked about the same thing, how drawing strength through tribulations from, how showing joy through your tribulations will and strengthen you and embolden you through this. So these men they spent a lot of time with Jesus, and no, no doubt this was a, a reoccurring theme in a lot of his messages was this idea that when trials come, you're not to just lose heart and be discouraged. Sorry, this small pulpit's messing me up here. <laughs> um, Paul, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul, the author of this book here to the Romans, he had an ailment that we're not really sure what it was, but he speaks about it here. In verse 7, he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He says, rather than so that I won't become prideful in the ability that God's given me, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So this, I believe, is a recount of Paul's struggle with this. Paul didn't get the, the privilege of spending so much time with Jesus as the other apostles did. So I think this is him explaining how he was coming through these, he was kept coming under this tribulation and he pleaded with God, why am I going through this? I'm your servant. I sh you should help me through this. And God turns him and says, no, Paul, you don't get it. My grace is sufficient for you, meaning I will strengthen you through this, but you are called to suffer through this. My strength is made perfect in weakness. By you suffering this, I'm strengthening you 
and I'm making you a better witness to other people. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So you see, Paul is grasping onto this idea and he's harnessing the hurt and the pain that he's feeling and he turns it into joy and even strength. And that's what he's trying to teach the people in Rome here in this text. So he's told you what we are to do, but he hasn't told us what not to do. And what not to do, we're kind of drawing on by rule of uh, elimination. Like He didn't tell us about it, but what you're not to do when you fall into tribulation, is don't become discouraged. You should be, I know it sounds like lunacy, but you should be joyful when you come into trials and tribulations. I'm not saying you go around looking for them, but when you find yourself in one, don't become downcast. Don't let yourself sink into a depression. That's the, that's the quickest route that the flesh is going to do inside of you. It's going to tell you, woe is me. No one else has it as hard as you sink down into a depression and he'll hold, and the devil will hold you in that pace as long as he can because you're very vulnerable then. What Paul is saying is you need to face that. You need to stand up. Take joy in these moments because these are the moments that your faith is, one, being tried, but also your faith is becoming evident to the people around you. It's not just a battle in your own heart, but everyone that watches you sees the quality of your faith in these times. This is what makes people of the kingdom of God shine like bright lights in the darkness. So let me illustrate this for you. If you were to go into work on Monday morning and one of your coworkers asks you about your weekend and you say, well, in the middle of the night Friday, I woke up because my child was screaming. They had a fever of 103 degrees. So I sat with him most of the night. Then Saturday morning came around and I ran out to the store because we were out of baby Tylenol. And on the way home, a brake line blew in my truck. So I was able to limp at home, and then I spent the rest of the afternoon trying to fix my brake line. I finally finished around 9 o'clock. I go to get a shower, and there's no hot water. So I go down to my basement, and here the septic backed up, and there's about 6 inches of water in my basement, and my hot water tank and furnace are both sitting in sewage. So now the way you tell that story is exactly what determines this thing that Paul is talking about. If you are just fuming to your coworker, venting, you know, saying things you shouldn't be saying, he's going to pick up on that, and he knows you're a believer, and he says, well, this guy's kind of just like me. He gets frustrated and loses his top. But if you go into that, and you have to prepare yourself for this, if you go into that and be like, you know, yeah, this was a rough weekend, but God helped me through it. You know, my child's feeling better. Th- praise him. He came and healed her. You know, I, uh, it could have been a lot worse. You know, you kind of go in it with that attitude. The person's going to be like, this guy's got something. You know, and when he finds himself maybe a year or two later in a situation, he might come talk to you, which, bam, open door right there. You know, not only that, he talks to other people. So he's on, he's on a shift with you. The next shift comes in. You wouldn't believe what happened to Steve this weekend, but then you wouldn't believe how he handled it all, you know? So, like, you're not only affecting the people right next to you, you're affecting the people they know as well. 
So that's kind of the thing that Paul's keying in on here. But he, he, he specifies a couple different things that it's going to produce in your life. Those couple, well, there's three things. But the first two are perseverance and character. So now perseverance, what exactly is perseverance? Um, I'm sure it's a term we're all f- familiar with, but um, our forefathers used the term, the ability to suffer long. And I find that to be a pretty good definition of perseverance that we can, we can grasp onto. Um, Charles Spurgeon had a profound quote on perseverance, which I found really interesting, but he said, by perseverance... The snail reached the ark. I thought that was pretty good. You know, it actually kind of describes it pretty well. And Paul's saying that, you know, every time you go through trials and tribulations, it strengthens you more and more. It builds your character. It builds the ability in you to not lose faith in these situations. It continues to strengthen you in your ability to trust the Lord throughout these situations. Another example would kind of be like the uh, annealment of metals. You know, when they want to make a piece of steel harder, they'll plunge it into a burning fire until it glows red, and then they'll scorch it to cool it. And what that does, every time that happens, it strengthens that metal. And that's a very similar situation that we're going through when we go into these trials. Think of a vine dresser. Jesus talked to a vine dresser time and time again. A vine dresser goes up to a plant and it's completely overgrown. He starts hacking off branches left and right. He knows what he's doing. Other people look at that thing thinking he's going to kill the plant, but he knows that it's going to strengthen the plant in the end. So that's what Paul's pointing out here. The more hard times you go through, the stronger you'll become. And also, the more you'll realize that God is the one sending these hard times on you because he has something in mind that he wants to strengthen in you. He also goes on to say, the better you get at enduring suffering, the stronger your character will become. Now, the Greek word he uses here for character means a trial-approved character, meaning that thing inside of you that from time after time being tested and tested becomes stronger and stronger. I'll use one more Spurgeon quote, and then I'm done, I promise. He says, a high character might be produced, I suppose, by continued prosperity, but it has seldom been the case. Adversity, however it may appear to be our foe, is our true friend. And after a little acquaintance with it, we receive it as a precious thing, the prophecy of a coming joy. It should be no ambition of ours to traverse a path without a thorn or a stone. To see what he's trying to say here is, we don't always want to choose the path of least resistance. Because you might get to the end where you find yourself being soft rather than a trial-hardened believer who will stand up in the face of tribulations and also be an amazing beacon of light to the people that he's in contact with. Now, this definitely doesn't come naturally to us as fallen creatures. In fact, it kind of seems, like I said before, lunacy to the fallen world or even maniacal. Like, how could this person be joyful while he's going through all this stuff? But all it does is it it starts them to think. Like, maybe there is something to this. Maybe I don't have to be depressed when, I, when things happen to me. So as your faith is tried over and over again, and God proves himself faithful to you over and over again, and he brings you through these trials, and after you come through them, he grabs you by the arm and he says, look back now, see what you just came through. I held you the whole way through this. 
I had this planned all along, and it always turns out to be for your good if you're a believer. I did this to strengthen you, to build you up, to teach you something, to admonish you something. Whatever the case may be, we know it is what's for our good. And this is what Paul and James and Peter are all trying to teach the people that they're writing to. Then he leads on to say that these experiences teach us hope. Now this hope isn't kind of like the way that we use the term hope. Like we may say, right now, I hope we get some rain because my garden's dying. You know, that's not exactly what he's talking about. This hope is an expectation, a trust, or a confidence is the definition of the Greek word that he's used here. That means that this is something that you become to expect from God, that he will be there for you. You begin to trust that he will be there for you and he's going to hold you up through this. And then you gain the confidence that he will be there for you and he will uphold you through this and that it is all for your good. You will begin to trust him more and more as you get to the point where you see trials and tribulations coming and you, you're able to just roll up your sleeves, brace for the blow, and understand that this is for my good. You, may even be, you should even be joyful saying, yes, my father wants to strengthen me. He is going to test me for something. And then resolve in your mind to pass that test. Don't falter. Don't fall back on your old ways. Face it, face it with strength. Persevere. And he will bring you through ever the stronger. And then Paul goes on to say that this hope will not disappoint. Because the hope is in God. And God will never disappoint. He is ever faithful. He's always there for you, and he loves you more than anyone in this world ever has or ever will, and everything he does for you is for your good. This is a God that we can trust in and we can hope in. So that's kind of the meat of the text, but now what do we do with all this? What does this mean for us? Well, the idea here is, don't be afraid of tribulations and sufferings coming into your life. These are good things. Look with me to John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus himself, it's actually on the overhead, sorry. Jesus himself says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus is the king of this world. There's no other government power that can do anything about it. Our country, Mr. Biden, Mr. Putin, Mr. Xi, they have nothing to do with anything that goes on in this world. It's all been planned out already, and we have one king. And he knows everything about your life. Everything that you've done since you were a child, since you were born. Every desire of your heart, every thought that's gone through your mind, he knows the exact areas you need to grow in, and he knows exactly how to teach you these things. Just like any loving father who corrects their children out of love, but they sometimes have to bring sufferings into their lives in order to teach them something, in order to help them grow and to become civilized human beings. Good. Think back to that vine dresser. There's a reason Jesus used this analogy. Imagine a vineyard that had been growing overgrown for 10, 15 years. That's kind of how our lives were when we came to Christ. We had been just completely living for ourselves, 
and growing wild for years and years. And what does the vine dresser do when he's handed this vineyard? He sharpens his shears and he gets to work, hacking off branches, giant branches. I mean, you're talking something that's this overgrown. It's going to take a lot of work. He, uh, removing mass amounts of growth, and to someone outside who doesn't know anything, he, uh, you know, it looks like they're about to kill the plant. But um, only the vine dresser knows this is all for the good. The plant itself may think, I'm going to be killed in this process. I'm losing 90% of, my, of, of the, the branches on me. But the vine dresser knows that all, this, all these branches that are, that are there that have never been tended are just empty baggage. In fact, those branches are sucking the energy out of the plant and causing it to not bear as much fruit. So as he prunes and peers away branch after branch, all that may be left when it's done is a, is a blunt stem. And someone who could see from the outside may think, I don't know how this, is, this plant's ever going to survive this. The plant itself may, I don't know how I'm ever going to survive this. But the vine dresser knows that once this plant goes through the trial of a cold winter and the warmth of that spring air arrives, that plant's going to burst forth with all kinds of new growth and it's going to bear more fruit than it ever had in its entire life. And that's exactly what God puts us through when he sends us through these trials. So don't be afraid of trials and begin to recognize that these are ways that we, this is how we grow. That's exactly what God's doing. He's constantly shaping and molding us to be more and more in his image. And sometimes the only way that we will learn, because we are stubborn humans, is through suffering and discipline. So like I said before, don't shy away from this. Don't wallow in self-pity, sink into a state of depression, because he may continue disciplining you and bringing these trials upon you until you learn your lesson. Remember, Paul says we are to rejoice in these sufferings. And these aren't empty words coming from Paul. Paul knew suffering. Paul was ridiculed. He was beaten countless times. He was mocked, sent to prison. But he never became depressed. He never said, woe is me. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are teaching in Philippi. And Philippi was not very receptive to them. And they come across this young girl who's a slave girl. And her masters were using her. So she was possessed with a demon that gave her divination, they say. Which basically, she was a fortune teller. And her masters were using her to make money off of her. She would tell people's fortunes. They would pay the masters and so on and so forth. And Paul sees her and takes pity on her and casts the demon out. And so now the, her masters just lost their golden goose. So they're furious with him. They grab him and Silas, drag them before the authorities. And we'll start reading in verse 20 here. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. 
Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So these men are beaten and hauled away to lockup. This isn't just the holding cell. He takes them into the inner prison, fastens their feet into the stocks. So imagine you're a prisoner in there. Who knows what you're in there for? Hopefully you're falsely accused. But you're sitting there chained up, and all of a sudden these two men come in, probably being carried by other soldiers, beaten to a pulp, thrown down on the ground, locked up, and they leave. Now, there may not have been windows in here. We find out in, later on that it's very dark. But So these men are sitting there throughout the night, and all of a sudden they start praying to their God. And you may not even know this God, but they're praying to this God, and the prayers aren't, please bring me out of this prison. Please curse these people that did this to me. I, why do I keep falling into these trials? It's no. Thank you, God, for giving me the strength. Thank you for blessing me with this trial. Thank you for bringing me to this very moment. Please use this in our lives. Please use this as a witness to the people around us. And to these people, they're like, what in the world are these guys doing? Then all of a sudden, they start singing. Look at verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were all listening to them. I think that right there is key. All those prisoners were listening and watching these men because they knew they had something that they did not. The jailer himself also. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, Supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. So they're sitting there singing, praying, and all of a sudden there's a giant earthquake. The doors swing open. All the prisoners' chains drop off. The jailer, who probably was fall asleep listening to the singing, wakes up, sees the door open, and like I said, it's dark in there. He thinks everyone's gone. So he says, I'm done. Pulls out his sword, decides to take his own life rather than being probably maybe crucified or something for the crimes he's committed. Paul tells him, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Verse 29, then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke to the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house and set food before them, he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So what happens to these two men here? They didn't fall into a depression. They didn't say, woe is me. They rejoiced in their tribulations, and God blesses them. Not only does he bring them out of prison, this man dines, wines and dines them, but also they, by their witness, caused him and his entire family to come to believe in Christ. That's the strength of the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom of God. We are not of this world, and it's apparent to other people. And when they need it, they're going to come looking for you. One of the, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but like uh, I saw on a marquee one time outside of a church, Jesus will fix all your problems. Or something along the lines of, you got problems, question mark? Jesus is the answer. Well, if Paul would have heard that or read that, what do you think he would have done? You know, I think he would have probably laughed. Like, Jesus isn't here to take away my problems. Paul would have said, my problems hadn't even begun until I became a Christian. 
Matter of fact, these stinking Christians were the only problem I had before I became a Christian. No, Jesus isn't here to fix your problems. He's actually here to send you problems so that you may be purified. And that doesn't happen by him just giving you an easy life. That happens by him plunging you into the refiner's fire from time to time. So what are we to do with all this information? Well, I have a little bit of specific application to give to three different groups of people here. So I want to start with young people that are here. I mean those in junior high, high school, and college. I want to start by saying that I have pity on you folk. You are in the most hostile environment in this country towards Christianity. Teachers and professors are pushing more and more to indoctrinate you into the world vision, and the young people of this age are so lost. It's hard to find friends that believe the same thing you do, and when you do stand up for your faith, your friends will forsake you. But trust me, from being that person, those friends weren't worth having in the first place. Stand strong in your faith, young people. Hold on to the truths that you've learned in this place. And have pity on those kids who badmouth Christianity and belittle it because their souls are lost at this time. They need this Jesus that you know. For the unbeliever, this world is as good as it's going to get. But for you who are suffering through these tribulations, this world is the worst part of our eternity. We are going to so much better of a place. And when you get there, you will receive the reward for the sufferings you're going through on this earth. So hang in there and keep fighting and know that these school years will be over. It doesn't get much easier, but it will get a little easier. Now to those who are the working age, those who are from people who are out of school to retirees. You probably don't experience as much belittling as these high school kids do, but you will experience tribulation. Like I spoke about before, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, debilitating illness. You know, we're all going to run into trials. We're all going to have pain. We're all going to suffer in some way or another. But we're also, I think, able to have the largest impact on the lost because you work with them every day. You're around them every day. These people are watching you every day. If they know you're a believer, they're watching because non-believers like to compare themselves to believers. They have an idea, like, they think in their minds that they're good and that they're going to be okay when they die. And when they see someone who professes to be a believer acting similar to the way they do, they think, okay, maybe I am okay. Maybe I am, you know, but in their mind, they still have doubts. So when you stand up for what you believe in, you go through what we're talking about here, you experience trials, and you're joyful in it, and you come out shining with the proper attitude, these people, that's going to make a giant impact on these people because the way that our world is now, you just don't see that. You don't have these kind of people that you can lean to when things go wrong. But if you do act this way, people will, no doubt, when they come into troubles and trials of their own, they're going to say, hey, you know what, that guy, I need to talk to that guy. You know, He seems to have something that I don't and, I, and that I need. You know, So we are called to be salt and light to our peers because they go, are, like I said, they're going to go through trials and tribulations of their own. And this is one way that we can be 
a strong witness to them. So fight on, persevere. Hopefully the Lord comes soon and you don't have to fight very long. But Now to the elderly folk, retirees. And I imagine I'm going to catch some heat for this because I am definitely not a retiree. And I don't know what it's like, I know. You've had a long life. You had to walk to school eight miles uphill both ways. But I don't believe that anyone's old enough to not be convicted. Now, I know you've worked hard in your life. Your life, your generation worked a lot harder than my generation does. And you're ready to relax. And I'm not speaking down on that. I just want to warn you against something. And that is laziness and lethargy. Don't give up the fight. Don't stop serving. I believe what kills more elderly people in this country is not cancer or heart disease. It's a comfortable chair and cable TV. Don't sink into that situation where you just kind of let the world pass you by. You've worked hard. You have a strong faith. Share that with this younger generation. Like I said, don't stop serving. Don't give up now. I'm not saying go join the Peace Corps, but maybe simple things like volunteer to help serve a meal at the Salvation Army. You know, offer to help teach Sunday school class from time to time. Come out to our work days. And I'm not saying strap on a tool belt and hammer, but some of the best work that can be done is on the other people working. If someone's up painting something on a ladder, it might be a good thing for someone to be down there just talking to them. You know, see how they're doing. See how they're doing spiritually. See how their life's going. Com- you know, communicate with them. Get in touch with them. You have a lot of wisdom that you've gained throughout your life. And the young people of this generation are hungry for wisdom. Wisdom's not knocking at our door anymore. It's hard to find. So share that with these people. Uh, So the next one I have written down is offer to take a turn in nursery or junior church. Now I know, actually, let me tell you something. I I went wakeboarding on vacation last week. Okay, and I'm not a wakeboarder. I think I was on my feet for about maybe eight minutes total. But for about four days after that, I felt like I had been hit by a truck. And I understand that's probably how it would feel like to spend 30 minutes in the nursery. But you know what? While you're suffering and every day you wake up and you're aching and groaning from the pain, just remember, those aches and pains are coming in the service of the Lord, not from playing around on the water with a piece of wood. God's going to watch these things. God's going to repay you for these things. George Whitfield once said, I'm tired in the Lord's work, but I'm not tired of it. That's how we should all view this. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to wake up early, have your devotions, stay up late, have your devotions, work a full day, serve the Lord, serve here. You know, it is exhausting. But that's how we all need to be. Tired in the Lord's work and not tired of it. Keep fighting, keep serving, keep giving your all, keep running. Think of a marathon runner. There's a good reason that that illustration is used quite a few times in the, throughout Scripture. Think of a marathon runner who's been a runner his whole life. He breaks his record every time he runs, but he's getting to the point in his life where he knows he's going to start losing it, and he's training one more time to beat his own record one more time. So he starts running and running and running. Every ounce, of his, every ounce of energy he has, he starts spending. He's run through 25 and a half miles. He's got a half mile left. 
Do you think he just coasts? Do you think he just takes it easy for the rest of it? No way. He gives everything he's got, every ounce of energy. His, uh, his muscles are burning. His muscles are aching. And he's just running and running and running because he knows the, the reward he's going to feel when he crosses that finish line. And for us, running this race, when we finally burst through that finish line, what we're going to see, which the finish line for us is death, we're going to see our Jesus looking at us, smiling. He won't even have to say the words because his face will say it all. Well done, good and faithful servant. You fought the, right, the, the fight. You've run the race. Welcome. This is your home now. And when you finally stop, you can finally take a breath. You hear a noise. You look around. It's all of heaven applauding. A race well won and a crown well won. This is what we should look forward to. This is what we need to continue to push for. Fight, fight, fight through these trials. And you will come out victorious in the end. And God will richly, richly bless you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are just your humble servants here, Lord. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. Please help and strengthen us through the rest of our years, Lord. Please help us to take home something here that we can hold on to. And when these tough times come, and they will come, our faith will never falter. We will continue to trust you because we know that you love us more than anything in this world, Lord. Thank you so much for everything you've done for us, Father. Please bless these people now as they go out into this world, Lord. Help them to be, help them to be beacons of light in this community. Help us to shine and to call the lost and to just live our lives as solid witnesses of what you've done for us and who you are. I thank you so much, Father. We pray these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.